month. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Walthrop, Chief Executive and proud member, and I'm sorry about the uh, little delay there as we got started. Today is September 9th, you're with a virtual City Club Forum. May 4th was the 50th anniversary of the Kent State shootings, a day when the Ohio National Guard opened fire during a protest against the war in Vietnam. The National Guard that day killed four unarmed students and wounded nine others on the Kent State University campus. It was a watershed moment for a nation divided by the conflict in Southeast Asia. And in its immediate aftermath, a student-led strike forced the temporary closure of colleges and universities across the country. John Bechter was 10 years old when the shooting occurred, just 20 miles or so from his Northeast Ohio home. Durf, as he's known to his fans and friends alike, examined the shooting in his latest graphic novel, Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio. In the book, he doesn't just look at the events of that day, he also illuminates the lives and backgrounds of those who died. The book had been scheduled to be released in May, coinciding with the 50th anniversary of the shooting, but of course, this is 2020, so it's delayed. And here we are today. Let me tell you a little bit about Durf Bachdurf. He began drawing political cartoons for the student news newspaper while attending Ohio State. A prize-winning cartoonist, he won international acclaim for his first graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer. His comic strip, The City, ran in more than 140 alternative and independent newspapers. Durf has won more than 50 awards for his work in newspaper journalism, including being part of the Akron Beacon Journal team that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service in 1994. Today, Mr. Backdurf will deliver some remarks and share a presentation about his book before turning, as we always do, to your questions. You can text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. If you're on Twitter, please tweet them at the City Club and we will work them in. Also, I should mention that if you'd like to get yourself a copy of the book, Max Bax on Coventry Road in Cleveland Heights is offering a 20% discount to City Club members. If you're a member, check your email or our member Facebook page for the discount code. And lastly, a quick thank you to the City Club's generous members, sponsors, and donors who support our virtual forums. You can find a full list at cityclub.org slash thank you, and you can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member while you're there. And now it's my pleasure to welcome to the City Club, Durf. Hi there, Durf. Welcome. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, sure. I hope you're doing well. Take it away. All right. Let's just jump in. Um, so as Dan mentioned, this is a graphic novel. That's what I do. Um, I know that may raise some eyebrows among the less enlightened out there who haven't yet accepted comics as a legitimate storytelling art form. But let me start by just defending my art form for a minute. Um, you know, this is not Archie and Jughead goes to the anti-war movement. This is not a couple of long underwear types beating the crap out of each other. Comics have won Pulitzer Prizes. Comics in recent years have won National Book Awards. We are right now in a golden era of comics, not only in this country, but worldwide. And it is a important art form that is, is transcending comics to be adapted into film and TV. A lot of what you see out there now started as comics. So um, keep that in mind as we continue on. Uh, those of you who know me at all probably remember me from my uh, years as the cranky post-punk old comic scribbler in the weekly rags that used to run around town. Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago. I had a lot of fun doing it, but uh, when newspapers began to fail, I decided to find something else to do, and I wandered over to uh, graphic novels. Now, graphic novels are it's a lofty term for large comic book, really. Um, this is my best known work, My Friend Dahmer. Yeah, it's not my first graphic novel, by the way, Dan. That is factually incorrect. This is my second. Um, my Friend Dahmer uh, came out in 2012 and was really a breakthrough work for me. Uh, it, it launched me into this, this fabulous new career and kind of proved that uh, I was better at this than anything else I'd attempted before, which of course means I wasted 25 years of my career, but you know, these things happen. Um, now the Kent State story for me starts in Richfield, Ohio, which is my hometown. 
And it begins in April 1970, when I was 10 years old, as Dan mentioned, when the Ohio National Guard invaded my hometown. They were sent in to crush a Teamster strike, which was taking place at the cluster of truck depots by the Turnpike exit in Richfield. Uh, the truck companies tried to smash through the picket line with uh, convoys of trucks driven by strike breakers. Needless to say, the Brotherhood of Teamsters did not take kindly to this, and it got ugly fast. It's important to remember the context of the times, and I don't dwell a lot on context uh, in this book, but uh, um, you know, you have to put yourself back in 1970 which was one of the worst years we've ever had. Um, of course, most of it revolved around the Vietnam War, which was still raging on. 1969 had been one of the deadliest years of the war with over 11,000 U.S. dead. Um, it, was, it was a war that was tearing the nation in two. It was bankrupting us, sinking the economy. It was really a, um, a debacle by 1970. So the streets filled with anti-war protesters, millions and millions of them, and the partisan rancor of the time uh, easily matched that of 2020, which is shaping up to be a real sweetheart of a year too. College campuses around the country exploded. This is Ohio State, which was actually worse, much worse than Kent State, and also had the guards sent in, in fact, in much greater numbers. It was more violent. The massacre, the Kent State massacre, very likely should have occurred at, at Ohio State, but didn't. Cities were in flames. This is Glenville in 68, all around the country. It, it just seemed as if the entire American society was ripping itself in two. And of course, over it all hovered this the specter of the Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation, just a push of a button away, and the seemingly invincible Soviet Union at the time. Back in Ohio, Governor James A. Rhodes kept the peace at the point of a gun. Now, Rhodes was a downstate good old boy, but he was an authoritarian strongman who believed in using the National Guard to keep order. He sent out the Guard during his first two terms in office more than any other governor in the state. Texas at number two wasn't even close. And Ohio was one of the few states that allowed its guardsmen to carry live ammo into civil disturbances. <clears throat> Rhodes was a Nixonian strongman. Um, he was running, he had about to be term limited out of office in 1970. He was running for an open U.S. Senate seat, the Republican nomination for an open U.S. Senate seat. The primary was Tuesday, May 5th and Rhodes was trailing his opponent, uh, one of the many Tafts who have served in this country, in this uh, state. As the election approached, Rhodes was desperate because he was about to be out of a job, a government job, for the first time since the 1930s. So striking Teamsters were really the uh, perfect way for him to energize his Republican base by bringing the boot down on them. Back in Richfield, this this affected me deeply because, you know, I was, I was 10 years old. I was living in this little kid bubble in this peaceful small town life in Mayberry. And suddenly my town's under military occupation. And it, it really rattled me. Uh, it popped that kid bubble for the first time in my life. Uh, the guard camped right across the street from Richfield Elementary School. That's my soccer field that those tents are pitched on there. And all day long, I'd, sit, I'd look out the school windows and see these Jeeps and trucks just roaring past. And remember, these Teamsters may have been Union boogeymen to Rhodes and his allies, but these were my neighbors. The truck depots were the town's biggest employers. So these were the fathers of my classmates. These were my Little League coaches. These were my Cub Scout leaders. And to see soldiers pointing guns at them, it, it really affected me. Um, I know that sounds a little precocious, you know, 10-year-old, really, it affected you. Um, but it did. And 
I can actually draw a straight line from what happened in, in spring 1970 to the start of my career. I mean, you know, for the first time, I began to think about more about the world around me, especially when the shootings happened. A few days after uh, the Teamster strike uh, was started and the guard came in, the trouble at Kent State started. And now Rhodes had an even juicier target, the, the number one target, the Antifa of its day, unruly student radical protesters. So the call came in for the guard to pack up and leave Richfield and head off to Kent. And some of these same soldiers from the 145th opened fire on Blanket Hill a couple days later. Now, at the time I was delivering the Akron Beacon Journal, that was actually my first job in newspapers. And I well remember that headline the day after, and then learning that it was the same soldiers I had seen outside my school and hearing the reaction of the people in town and my classmates. And it, it really did spark something in me, some kind of intellectual curiosity. And I began reading the news a little more and looking around uh, at the outside world. And as I said, I know that sounds obnoxiously precocious, but here's some proof. This is a political cartoon I drew in 1970 about the National Guard in Richfield. My mother saved this, bless her. Um, I think it's my, maybe my first political cartoon, at least it's the oldest surviving one I have. So I drew that at age 10. This is one from a year later, age 11. Nixon as a king. And you can tell a kid drew it, of course, because that's Gallardi in the background. We would have been much better off voting for Gallardi again in uh, 1972 rather than reelecting Nixon. So this led directly to me becoming a high school journalist. It led to me earning a journalism scholarship to Ohio State, majoring in journalism, becoming a political cartoonist, which was my first incarnation as a pro. I can draw a straight line back to the incidents and the effect that Kent State and the National Guard invading my hometown had on me. So that's why I've carried this story with me ever since. I've always been fascinated with it. And Kent State was on a short list of books that I wanted to do for years. And finally, I decided to, to take it on. Now, when you, you first tackle a book, you know, you have to sit down and decide, okay, what's my book about? And very early on, I decided the way I wanted to tell this story was through the eyes of the four. Sandy, Bill, Allison, and Jeff, the four kids who were cut down on May 4th. Four remarkable kids, but four very typical kids, um, um, very much like my own kids who are both in college now. We had Bill, the young ROTC cadet from Lorain, Ohio. He wanted to be an army psychologist so we could work with uh, returning Vietnam vets who were suffering from PTSD. He was just about a perfect kid, beloved by his friends, revered by his family. He wrote his mother every week. He had the mind of a scientist and the heart of a philosopher. Then there was Sandy from Boardman, Ohio, which is over near Youngstown. Uh, she was bubbly, friendly, outgoing, extroverted, a speech therapy major. She wanted, as one of her friends described her to me, to save all the puppies in the world. <clears throat> Jeff, who was a transplant from Long Island, there was a surprisingly large contingent of Long Islanders at Kent State in 1970. I'm not sure why. I think word of mouth. Jeff was, like so many kids, just a, a guy who wasn't sure what he was going to do with his life, but was slowly figuring it out. And that's what college is for, right? He was outgoing and creative and fun. And then there was Allison, originally from Cleveland Heights. She was the youngest of the four, just 19, and she had just turned. 19, a few weeks earlier. She was a uh, tall, statuesque beauty with this thick mane of black hair, whip smart, and very committed, already uh, an experienced peace activist, anti-war activist, but she was uh, thoroughly anti-violence. And then I decided to add a fifth perspective. I stumbled across uh, an account of a young guardsman in the archive at Kent State. And he, he gave his account several times over the years. Um, it's a great account. He gave it anonymously. 
And so I give him a, a false name just to preserve that anonymity. It wasn't hard to figure out who he really is, but I decided as a thank you for giving his account at all, I'd leave, I'd leave him, I'd leave that secret. I um, mean, it's a great account, full of details. Uh, he was present in Richfield and then at every event at Kent, he was on campus on May 4. He was one of the guardsmen who opened fire on, on Blanket Hill. He likely just shot into the air one bullet, but uh, he did open fire. Um, there's some problems with his account. I think uh, he's a bit of a braggart. Uh, he's a bit of a hard ass. He exaggerates some things. He's untruthful about a, a key point, but otherwise it's a really wonderful account. And I really had no choice here. He's the only guardsman, the only shooter specifically, who has ever given his account. The rest have maintained their silence. Some, many have taken their secrets to the grave with them. So the story really begins on April 30th. Uh, the structure of my book is it's four days, May 1st to May, 1st to May 4th. But the story really begins on April 30th when Nixon went on the air and stunned the nation by announcing that U.S. troops had just invaded neighboring Cambodia to hunt the North Vietnamese who were stationed there. Now, Nixon had promised just a few months earlier that he was, we were withdrawing from Vietnam, and now here he was invading another country. The next day, college campuses across the nation exploded in violent protests. Remember, the Vietnam War was not a war, as all wars have been since in this country, fought by volunteers. Half of the troops in Vietnam were drafted, forcibly conscripted. <clears throat> it was the bane of this generation, this fear of being dragged off to die in the jungle. And it was a very real fear. As I said, uh, the violence at other campuses was much worse. Ohio State exploded shortly after, actually the day of Nixon's announcement. OU had a lot of problems. Miami, Kent State, the day started very sleepily. Um, there was just a, a brief sort of street theater rally on campus where a group of grad students buried a copy of the U.S. Constitution to protest Nixon's actions and announced that there would be a larger anti-war rally to be held the following Monday at noon in the same spot. That night, however, trouble flared up, and this is where it all started. Uh, a group, a small group of uh, anti-war student radicals, maybe 50, uh, whipped up a crowd that was gathering in the Water Street Bar District, large crowd. It's kind of spilled onto the streets. A lot of anger, a lot of beer. And these radicals managed to get things going. And there was... conservative Democrat who was no fan of the university and was no fan of, of the unruly students who lived in his town. And he was terrified that the 21,000 students at Kent were going to rise up as one come pouring over the hill and burn his town to the ground. He actually believed that. And so that night he pleaded with the National Guard to send in troops to keep the peace. And from Rhodes's perspective, this was perfect. He had already sent in the guard to Ohio State. Now we can send it into Kent State and crack down on the number one boogeyman of Republican voters in 1970, unruly student radicals. They were the Antifa of their day. <clears throat> now the following day begins rather quietly. And it's an unusual story structure with this book. Every day begins quietly because, you know, you have... I mean, the, the common misconception is that, you know, you had 15,000 students on Kent State who were rampaging about causing trouble. And in fact, it was actually only a few hundred. The rest of them, 20,000 20, students, were, were just moving through their day normally. The university was open. Classes were in session, obviously not on the weekend, but uh, it was very typical college experience for everyone else. So each day begins rather quietly, and then tensions build. And then there's an explosion, and then there's a release. And the next day, you know, it starts quietly again. It's this unusual up and down construct to the story. 
Um, and each day it gets a little tenser. But I love these quiet moments, and the book is full of them, because this is where you find the humanity of the story. For example, this is Sandy on Saturday. Her mom pops in unexpectedly to drop off some clothes. And think about what we're seeing here. You know, Not only do we get to, 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 to see how Sandy interacts with people and how she talks and, and what her house is like and how she lives, but here's her mom, who's probably hugging her for the last time. In fact, I know she's hugging her for the last time. The last time she smells her hair. The last time she hears the sound of her voice. Because in a few days, her daughter will be dead. Now, I mean, if you have kids, think how, think how that would feel. Right? There's really a lot of power in these, in these quiet moments. And I believe that it's really important to, 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 in showing it this way, and showing it through the eyes of the four, I'm taking the reader and putting you on the ground with them. And you see what they see and experience what they experience. And one of the four, well, actually the five with the guardsmen, was present at every incident that happened. They weren't necessarily taking part, but they at least were around. And we see that unfold through their eyes. And I believe that makes history very personal. And when you make it personal, that makes it emotional. And I, want, I wanted people to feel this history. The next evening, more trouble. Uh, the same group of radicals had long wanted to burn down the Razi building. Now, Kent State had a very uh, a small but very active SDS chapter, Students for the Democratic Society, was the main student protest group. But SDS was finished by 1970. It had consumed itself in uh, infighting and, and uh, torn itself to pieces. Kent SDS was also finished. The university had thrown it off campus. Its leaders had been jailed. And in fact, it just gotten out, but they were barred from campus. But there were still a few members still uh, still on campus, obviously, and, and taking action. But they long wanted to burn the ROTC building down, and they pulled it off on this night. It was an old Army field hospital that had been repurposed as a ROTC building. And they somehow managed to set it aflame, and it went up like a match. And at this moment, the National Guard poured onto campus. Now, another misconception is that the students burned the ROTC building and then the guard was sent in because of that. That's not true. The guard was already on its way. In fact, the guard was already in town when the ROTC, and they were you know, gathering on the edge of town to march onto campus when the ROTC building went up. The decision had already been made to bring the guard in. And the key point here is that the guard swept across campus. Keep in mind, this is an open university full of kids. And they attacked any student that was outside. They gassed them, they bayoneted them, they arrested them, they beat them with rifle butts, they chased them. Even if they had nothing to do with, with what was happening on campus, even if they were as surprised as anyone to see this pillar of flame. It was really a, a huge overreach, and it wouldn't be the last one. Uh, The next day, uh, the guard settles in. There are checkpoints everywhere. This, the campus is basically under military occupation, and the students are not happy about it. And tensions rise throughout the day. Um, it gets a little tenser with each passing day, as I mentioned. <clears throat> that night, there is a sit-in. A group of 500 students marches off campus onto Main Street, violating curfew because uh, campus curfew is uh, midnight. The curfew in town, which is technically Main Street is, was 8 p.m. So they came out to defy curfew, sat down, and, and demanded that the Guard end its military occupation of campus. Keep in mind also this is Sunday night, so all of the students who had gone home for the weekend are now pouring back to campus and find themselves on a John Wayne film set. I mean, these kids have done nothing. They weren't even there, but people are pointing guns at them. People are ordering them about, demanding their IDs. The mood was sour, but it was at this moment that the authorities had the chance, specifically the guard, had the chance to ease tensions and really diffuse the situation. And I see a parallel here with what's happened with some of the BLM protests. And instead of defusing the situation, the guard attacked. 
It was called the Night of the Helicopters. And there were three helicopters that roamed the skies overhead, dropping tear gas on anyone they saw outside, not only on campus, but also in the surrounding student neighborhoods. And students were bayoneted. There were probably upwards of a dozen students bayoneted, beaten, gas, chased all over campus. Again, it was even worse than the previous night. And it was at this moment that the whole thing situation flipped on its head. It became, now it wasn't an anti-war uprising. It was an anti-guard uprising. It was the students versus the guard from this point forward. And the guard, exhausted, overworked, ordered around by incompetent officers and a governor who was trying to win an election, they were fed up too. It was an ugly situation. I draw a badass night scene, I have to admit. I really, it, this, this book was uh, some really tough drawing, as you can tell so far, crowd scenes, night scenes, military scenes, nothing I've really tackled before. Um, I spent a lot of time down in Kent uh, doing live drawings, taking reference shots. For example, this, this one came to me as I was, uh, this, ends, this is a splash page that ends this chapter. I was just walking along the, uh, uh, the edge of the tracks there up on the on, on, the, on the right. Uh, I had actually been at Bill's house, which was further down, uh, taking some reference shots. And I was walking down this stretch, and I was like, this this scene came to me. I thought, man, that would look great. I was really happy with the way this one came out. So, you know, it, it, there's, there's something to be accomplished by putting yourself in a space, as an author, putting yourself in a space and just kind of taking it all in with all your senses working and see if inspiration strikes. So that brings us to Monday, May 4, and the day again begins quietly. Now Bill sleeps through his alarm, um, he puts on his favorite outfit, and he heads off to class. Uh, he has a test in uh, ROTC class, military strategy, <laughs> fittingly, so he can't delay. As I said, the university is open, and this is a key point because most of the students attending the university had student deferments, the male students. They kept them out of the draft. Well, to keep your student deferment, student deferments had been pared down a lot. There were, there were more restrictions were applied uh, the previous fall. To keep your student deferment, you had to keep up your grades. If your grades fell below a certain class level, you were exposed to the draft. And two or three months later, you could find yourself walking through the jungles in Vietnam, wondering if you were going to see the next dawn. It was a very real concern. So it was literally for these students, a matter of life or death that they go to campus on Monday, May 4th. But Rhodes had dictated that no, there could be no student gatherings on Monday, May 4th. He wanted to head off that rally and he wanted to prevent any further gatherings. Well, what's a student gathering? Is a classroom full of students a student gathering? Is a cafeteria full of students a student gathering? Are students walking together from dorm to classroom? Is that a student gathering? Unclear. And the guard had no idea what he meant either. If you're looking for a villain at the heart of the story, it always comes back to James Rhodes. And Rhodes paid no penalty. He was reelected twice. He never really explained himself or answered for what he did this weekend, which was really political posturing to win an election. And that's really, I think, the hardest thing of all to justify. <clears throat> Sandy also had a test that morning. It's midterm week. And she was despondent that her dog had chewed through its rope and wandered off, but she didn't have time to go look for it because she had to, to bustle off to that test. And so as noon approached, for the first time in the story, all five of our my main characters come together on the commons at the same place at the same time. <clears throat> and the stage is set for tragedy. Now, of the four, two, Jeff and Allison, are actually taking part in the protest, which is basically just about 400 kids standing around 
the victory bell chanting at the guard. Bill and Sandy are watching from the hillside. They are not taking part. They're just pausing between classes. There's 400 kids around the victory bell. There's probably 2,000 kids on the hillside above, above the commons. Remember, this is the noon class break. And if you've ever been on Kent State at noon, you know what I'm about to describe. Every building on campus empties. Kids pour out of every dorm. They pour out of every classroom. They're moving about for, you know, 15, 20 minutes. The campus is absolutely full of kids. When the guard officers saw this, they flipped out. They thought all of these kids were coming to the protest when, in fact, they're just moving about their day. So it was a huge miscalculation. And the general in charge of the operation that day, a guy named General Canterbury, Brigadier General Canterbury, who was the second in command of the entire Ohio National Guard. He ordered the commas to be cleared. So instead of just letting them chant and go on their way, he attacked. And everyone was gassed, and then the guards swept across the commons with bayonets. Now Canterbury, who's the gentleman at the bottom in the suit, was later described by the Scranton Commission, which is the presidential commission that investigated the shootings, as, quote-unquote, a disaster, whose decisions were, quote-unquote, highly questionable. Uh, it was a debacle, and he was just an absolute incompetent. Canterbury actually rose to fame uh, leading the guard unit, which was the 107th Armored Cav, which was based in Cleveland, leading the guard unit that... Uh, stamped out the Huff Riot back in 1967. He'd been promoted to Brigadier General. He was a career paper pusher. He had never seen combat. And his actions this day are just inexplicable. <clears throat> now, this is really where the power of comics comes in because we don't, up until this point, we don't really have a visual narrative what happened on May 4. And, you know, I think this is, uh, this is what I can bring to telling the story. You know, we have great photos. I mean, we have those iconic photos of the day, some of the most famous photos ever taken. But we don't have a visual narrative. We have descriptions, written descriptions, but to actually show what happened, that's what I can bring here. And because um, it's kind of a confusing situation. The guard kind of stumbled about the scene going back and forth. They were in total confusion. Their officers didn't know what they were doing. It was uh, it was a real clown show. And then we come to that pivotal moment when the guard basically eight to ten members of one unit G troop out of uh, the Ravenna Armory part of the 107th turned as one and opened fire at protesters but also 50 protesters clustered near the bottom of Blanket Hill, about 200 feet away, for reasons unknown. Unfortunately, there was also, as if that wasn't bad enough, there was also about five or 600 students moving through the Prentice Hall parking lot and down Midway Drive behind them. And 67 bullets went tearing through that crowd. 67 30 caliber copper jacketed bullets over an inch long, mostly fired out of M1s, which is a combat rifle that has a range of two miles and is so powerful it can send one of those bullets clean through a foot-thick tree trunk. Now, I don't, I'm not going to show it, but uh, I don't spare the violence of this event. I show exactly what happened to these students, and I thought it was important to do that because uh, after the shootings, a Gallup poll was taken, and 68% of Americans thought the students deserved to be shot. And it was a very common opinion that the guards should have shot more of them. Just to kind of end this period of student unrest, it was really roiling the nation at the time. And my thinking here was, all right, well, you think that? Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like when one of those bullets tears through a young girl. Um, and it, it the, this book packs a wallop. I won't, I won't deny it, but I thought I'd, I'd warn you of that. <clears throat> so 
So let's talk a little bit about how the book came together. Um, I spent a lot of time in research. As I said, I was a, a journalism major, so I do know how to research a story. I worked for newspapers for many years. Uh, the first two years, I spent four years total putting this book together. The first two years were spent solely on interviews and research. And I started with interviews because I always like to do that. I did the same thing with My Friend Dahmer, which was a, another nonfiction book. And specifically, I wanted to talk to people who knew one of the four. So I talked to their friends, I talked to their classmates, I talked to their housemates, whoever I could track down or sought out their accounts. And this, you know, these early interviews, and I scored some really great ones, they really formed the structural foundation of this book. And I built onto it from there. Because again, I'm shooting for something that's very personal, and very emotional. So I wanted to go to the heart of it. From there, I dug into the archives. Now, Kent State University has a really wonderful archive called the May 4 Collection. It's on the top floor of their main library building here. And it includes just this vast array of materials. Uh, um, eyewitness accounts, uh, police reports, the president's papers, the mayor's papers, uh, testimonies, news accounts, photos, you name it. There's a second archive at Yale University which was uh, the result of the civil trials of the later, uh, a few years later. The parents of the slain students sued the state of Ohio over the deaths of their children. And so all of this material from deposition and discovery went to Yale because the families did not want it kept in Ohio because Rhodes was back in power by that point. So it's it understandable. So between these two archives, it's literally a mountain of material. The challenge was actually digging through this mountain to find what it I wanted to find what I needed, not, you know, just searching for material as, as, as is the case with other stories. I spent as long on visual research as I did on any kind of other research because this is after all a visual medium. And this is a period piece, 50 years in the rear view mirror. I'm, I'm capturing a very small moment in time, this uh, four days in May. And if you've spent any time in a college town, you know how quickly colleges and campuses change. So it was a real, it was a real puzzle to figure out what was there, what was, what was not there. For example, Water Street, which was the student bar district where the riot happened on Friday night. Uh, it's largely gone. Most of these buildings are gone. Uh, all the others are empty. So I had real trouble finding photo reference for this because no one took photos of it because who cares? You know, it's just a bar district in Kent, Ohio. And we had a different relationship with photography back then. We didn't shoot as many photos as we do now. You know, you don't hold up a cell camera and fire off 100 shots. You had to have, so you had a camera and film and processing and developing and printing. So it was a completely different relationship. I'm kind of proud of the way that I found it. I looked around for months and months and months to try to find photo reference and, I, and was coming up blank. And then I found that in an unusual way, I found this YouTube clip. This is a documentary, TV documentary, made in 1971 about Kent State. That's E.G. Marshall, the uh, actor. I think in 71, he was the voice of Timex, wasn't he? Timex commercials. Anyways, he's on Water Street talking about the Water Street riot, and there it is. There's Water Street. And so I have the signs, I have the facades, I have what it looked like, and I was able to recreate it. And this is important to me to get it right. Um, as I said, it was a real puzzle piece. I'm sure I've made some mistakes. In fact, I know I got one roof line on campus wrong. I'm sure someone will call me on that. <laughs> but I, I really made the effort, and it, it took months and months. And then once in a while, you stumble across just little nuggets of gold. And here's one. Uh, this is a phone message that was uh, in the May 4 Center. A bunch of phone messages addressed to Sandy that, that, that they had. Just a little piece of ephemera. And it's from a guy named Steve Drucker, who was her freshman year boyfriend, but they had broken up after that year, but stayed friends. He was also Jeff Miller's housemate in 1970. So he was a really great interview and gave me just uh, some wonderful scenes. Just a sweet message. Uh, Hi, how about supper at five? I'll call you. I took a photo of it and sent it to Drucker in case he didn't have it. And then I noticed the name on the message. Now remember, these, this is how kids contacted each other in 1970, obviously long before texts. 
an email like they do now. So, but they were still communicating. So they would contact each other by phone and leave messages. And in this case, it was a message left in the speech center where Kath, where uh, Sandy worked as a speech therapy major. You'd call in, someone, a student volunteer at the front desk would take the message and put it on the message board. You'd check the message board on your way out and see if you had any messages. That's how they communicated with each other. As I said, then I noticed the name on, on this message, Miss Beach. Sandy Beach? What the hell? So I contacted Drucker. I said, what's up with this name? He said, oh, yeah, that's my nickname for her at the time, Sandy Beach, because that's what she was. She was a sun-splashed Sandy Beach. And her friends and her classmates, her other classmates, started calling her that. It became her nickname. I was like, oh, man, that's great. Nobody else had that. And it just came because I stumbled across this, you know, digging through pieces of paper in the May 4 Center. I also spent a lot of time on the paranoia of the nation uh, at the time because it played a big part. You've got to work in context. You have to work in backstory because you need to understand the passions of 1970, just as you know, someone looking back at 2020 is going to have to understand the passions of 2020. And I kind of went down the rabbit hole here with the student radicals at the time, particularly fascinating were the weathermen who were the forgotten terrorists of the era. This, this was the extreme radical fringe of SDS who had somehow managed to take over the organization in a parliamentary coup and destroyed it in the space of about five months. By January 1970, SDS was finished. <clears throat> then they went underground and began a bombing campaign that went on for several years. It was remarkably effective. They bombed the Pentagon. They bombed the U.S. Capitol building. They were the number one monster in the eyes of the public. And they had a huge uh, presence in Cleveland uh, in 69 and 1970. There was a very famous, infamous rampage in the Severance Mall in Cleveland Heights when the weathermen smashed a bunch of windows. Of course, our thinker was bombed in front of the uh, art museum uh, in spring 1970, if not by a weatherman, at least somebody inspired by the weatherman because bombs were their thing. So everybody was talking about the weathermen in 1970. The fact, the, the reality was they were kind of a spent force. There was only a hundred of them. They were all underground, hunted by the FBI. But the paranoia, the fear of the weathermen was driving a lot of stuff that happened uh, in May 1970. I'm going to wrap it up by talking a little bit about process, if anybody's curious. This is how I write. Um, it's always words and pictures together. So I write in what's called thumbnails. These are little pages that I just scrawl on sketch paper. And I, I work in the dialogue and, and whatever I'm, I'm trying to come up with. And I see these scenes very clearly in my head, they're like little uh, they're like little film reels. And from there, I go directly to a pencil. It's a very detailed pencil. And this is where, this is the most time-consuming part of the process because this is where I pour in all my visual research. You know, uh, the bottom panel, for example, you see that's Sandy Street, and those that's the actual street. You've got period cars, you've got period clothes. This is where it all comes together, so this takes a long time. You can see from the thumbnail, if you can, can follow it, from those stick figures to real figures, that's pretty clear. I mean, I changed some angles, but there. Then I add the inks. Then I scan it into the computer and add the finishes. So it's a four-step process, pow, pow. But it comes together very cleanly. You know, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time composing pages. It's all very instinctual at this point from a lifetime of making comics pages, but uh, it, does, it does tend to work out. Not that every page is this easy. I mean, there are some pages that I had to redraw three or four times or have patches or, you know, make corrections. But when, it work, when it's working well, when I'm having a good day, it, it comes together very quickly. Uh, Here's another one. This is a double page spread. Because it's really important to 
show two page to think about two pages at once because when you open a book you're looking at that's the first visual you see those two pages hitting you at once and then you start on the top left corner so that, again this is another another thumbnail and from there the pencil <clears throat> now I know this is a night scene so I know I know what I'm going to do here in terms of the ink you see sometimes little X's in some of the blank areas. That means I'm going to fill that in with black, just a little note to self, sort of say. And I know this is going to be a scene with fire, so it's going to have some very dramatic lighting. And when you, you, know, you make the transition from pencil to ink, that's when it really all comes together. So you go from thumbnail to pencil to ink. <clears throat> And that's how one of these books comes together, but it's, you know, 250 thumbnails. Probably took, I don't know, four or five months to write the book. Then 250 pencils, then 250 inks, then scan it in 250 times and do 250 uh, finishes. And that's how a book comes together. Um, you know, when I started this book, I thought, we've circled clean back around to 1970. That was my fear. And it's only become more relevant since I turned it in last fall. And we've circled around and learned very little in the process, apparently. The same rancor, the same suspicion, the same paranoia we're seeing play out today, the same political grandstanding. And I truly fear that we are very, very close to another Kent State. So this book, was always meant to be a cautionary tale. All right, Dan. All right, Durf. Durf back, Durf, ladies and gentlemen. Um, there's a there's a round of applause happening in uh, home <laughs> offices and dining room tables across the region right now. Um, I was taking like really dorky screenshots with my phone to because I because I'm not very agile, but that was amazing. Thank you for sharing, especially the process picture. Thank you. Um, getting to see those is really um, really remarkable. I want to invite everybody to, if you've got questions, please text them to 330-541-5794. And you can tweet them at the City Club and we'll work them in. I want to ask you to, a few people were asking about the relevance for this moment. You, you, you addressed that a little bit, but I want to invite you to talk a little bit more about it. I mean, when I think about Kenosha and Minneapolis and over 100 days of, of protesting in Portland, Oregon, um, that became about the National Guard. In Portland, it really literally became a protest against the Guard after right. the, uh, the George Floyd protest. Yeah, it's chilling. I mean, yeah. uh, watching all of this unfold over the summer has been uh, slow torture. <laughs> you know, this book was supposed to be out last spring, as you mentioned. Um, and I, I know this is petty, you know, <laughs> given everything else that's happening in the world. But uh, as an author, well, you know, I am petty. And, uh, you know, just to have this book sitting in warehouses, it was killing me. And I, every day I thought I'd wake up and find, you know, 10 dead in Kenosha, 15 dead in Portland. It hasn't happened, thank God, but I think we're like, we are teetering on the edge. I actually think we're... We I, did. I mean, we did have a debt. We did yes. have protesters killed by a counter-demonstrator with a weapon. That's, yes, but that's different. That's that is different. different. Yeah. Troops opening fire. That's very it different. What yeah. I think we're closer to is street warfare. Yeah, definitely. Because the lasting legacy of Kent State, curiously, perhaps depressingly, in fact, it is depressing, is that we've spent as a nation 50 years developing this vast array of crowd control weaponry and techniques to ensure that something, you know, a lethal massacre like Kent State doesn't happen again because these guys have all of the the crowd control weapons that the National Guard did not happen, have in, in 1970. All they had was combat weapons, mm -hmm. lethal weapons. Now you have shields, you have batons, you have sound cannons, you have unmanned drones, you have a variety of gases and vehicles and all of this stuff that has been developed and deployed specifically to control us. So <laughs> welcome to 2020. Here's a question for you. Uh, in your novel, you document the racial dimensions of the story, an aspect often omitted in other chronicles of May 4th. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, I can. Uh, the protest movement at Kent State actually started with a group called Black United Students, who were uh, BUS for short. And they were a typical uh, civil rights group. Uh, the, the university had recruited, to their credit, had recruited a lot of African-American students, uh, mostly from Akron and Cleveland, because their, their campus was pretty much all white. So there was about 2% in, in 1970, I think, were African-Americans that had been brought to Kent. So you're talking about, uh, what, 400 kids, 500 kids. Um, and these kids were all veterans of the uprisings and the unrest in Akron and Cleveland the previous few years. They've been teenagers. And in all cases, the Guard had been sent in to crush those uprisings. So they knew what it meant when the National Guard moved in. And as soon as that happened at Kent, bus sent out word, that's it, we're out. Don't take part in any more protests. Stay in your dorms. Go to class. Do not confront these soldiers. Because as the, lethal, uh, the leader of uh, bus later said, if, you know, these soldiers were like soldiers anywhere else. If they can find any, a reason to shoot the black man, you bet they will. I mean, that was their perspective. That was their experience. Now, the white kids on campus had never had any experience with the guard. They didn't even believe that the guns they were carrying were loaded. So it was this kind of uh, white naivete that led, played a part in the tragedy. I think that they would have exercised a little more caution had they known. You mentioned that there's no visual narrative or videos um, or film. Of there's one, one piece of film. There's one piece of film and there's some audio tape mm -hmm. that uh, in public media have spent a lot of time listening to right. over the years. Um, does the lack of or the, the dearth of, of video evidence and, and film evidence contribute to our understanding of the narrative? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the, mainly because uh, there's one piece of film and it's, it's a wonderful piece of film. It was shot from the Tri Tower. So it was high up and it was shot over the, the parking lot and you see Blanket Hill and you see the guard at the top the moment they turned and fired. And what it shows and what I can recreate with comics is, is you see just how far away these students were from the guard. On average, the closest where most of the remaining protesters were 200 feet away. And most were 300 feet away. I mean, that's the length of a football field. And yet the guard claimed that they were in fear of their lives. In fear of what? I mean, you know, it would take an Olympic shot putter to throw a rock the length of a football field. In fact, the farthest student away was over 700 feet away. And the film footage really shows that, but that didn't come out for a while after the shootings. And I mean, the photos came out and, and I think that raised a lot of suspicions. And in fact, the Scranton Commission did say that the, the shootings were justified based on that photo evidence. But with, with comics, I can clearly show just how far away these kids were from the people who shot them. Mm -hmm. With in this, just to follow up on that for a second, I mean, like this is such a, a, a pivotal moment for Ohio history and for Northeast Ohio. Um, it's it, it's the kind of moment that, um, that brands a place, right? That yeah. Seared in our memory, in our collective memory. It's it's not that quite the same for the rest of the nation, and in particular, if you grew up here, if you're a younger a younger person, you grew up here, you you know about it. But if you grew up in California, you know. If you grew up in New York, you, this might not be something you're aware of, and that that and I mean your book. I mean, I would is part of the mission of the book to to. That's make why we read history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, I think that most people that I talk to know something about Kent State. They don't know the complete story. Yeah. So that's you know what I try to bring. Uh, the book already has uh, four foreign translations, and it looks it's already in a second printing in France. It just came out. So they're very interested in it. Now, I have a pretty good reputation there. It's a great comics country, but, uh, mm -hmm. and had, had a number of hit books, but they're very interested in this book, obviously because they're having their own protest movement, the Gilets Jaunes, and, and uh, you know, what's happened there. You can see the parallels. So, yeah, you know, it's just a great story. I mean, it's such a powerful story. And mm -hmm. I, hopefully I've told it well enough that, you know, people will be interested. Well, and I'll remind people that if you want a copy, you should uh, hit up Max Bax on Coventry. If you're a City Club member, you get a discount. 
Even if you're not you a citizen, uh, you can get signed copies too. They have a link there for signed copies. There. Yeah. Um, your point of view as a father yourself, um, you talked about the, I sensed you slowing down as you told the story of like <laughs> smelling her hair for the last time and all of that. Can you talk about how that informed the story you wanted to tell? Well, yeah, because my kids are the same age. I mean, my daughter is 21 years old, so she's the same age as Sandy. Um, yeah, you know, you, when you write, you have to almost employ a bit of method acting. You know, you kind of put yourself in, your, in, in the place of some of these people. I tried to imagine, to conjure up the emotion I needed for certain scenes, what it would be like if I got that call, you know, or my, when my daughter was dead. Um, and so that, that, that sticks with you. I mean, uh, I think any parent can feel that. Or any friend can feel that, you know. I mean, literally, what would you do if you saw her dead on the ground? I mean, the Neil Young line really goes to the heart of it, because the students of 1970 as well are still carrying this. I mean, they. I mean, you know, the the people that I interviewed so often broke into tears when telling me their stories. Um, it still carries a, a real impact, even half a century later. Can you talk more of what we had this other question earlier too about your process and how you collected all the information? When did you when did you start? When did you know you were writing this book? And you know, it's been on a list. It's been on a list of books I wanted to get to for a long time. I mean, like I said, I've carried it with me since I was a teenager. I've always I've read a lot of books over the years and a lot of articles and you know, whatever mm -hmm. stuff came up. So it's always been an interest of mine, fascination, really. And I've attended a number of commemorations over the years at Kent State. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was about, it was right after my last book, which was this kind of raucous comedy mm -hmm. about my days as a garbage man. And I was sitting down to just trying to think of another great book. book Durf, by oh, the thanks. Way. Thanks. Right. And I'm sorry that I forgot to mention, uh, the punk rock. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's my bad. Yeah, that's your bad. <laughs> You'll pay for that later. Malta. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so after that book, I, you know, I, I like to change it up. So I'd done a comedy and I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe now, maybe now I have the drawing skills mm -hmm. that I need to tell the story. It's a very complicated mm -hmm. book to draw. I mean, it really kicked my ass at times. I think it's still an open question whether I have those drawing skills, really? but I, you know, I made a shot. I took a shot. I took my best shot. And, uh, when I mentioned it to my editor and described what I wanted to do, he didn't hesitate. He just said, yeah, that's the one. That's it. And How, so talk about talk about interviewing people. How many people did you interview? How did you find them? And how you know, I've always how been what were your journalistic chops and all of this. I mean, I, I don't think there are too many other graphic novelists capable of doing journalistic history the way you oh, have. there are some there. There are quite a few, actually. I mean, the guys who did the March series, for example, uh, mm -hmm. Joe Stacco, who mm -hmm. does that's pretty much his uh, his uh, bread and butter. So yeah, it's it's a very popular. We call it documentary comics. It's become like this subgenre mm -hmm. that's uh, really produced some really wonderful work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, you know, this is how I learned to tell stories. This is how I was I was trained to tell stories. So I've always used it, even when I'm writing fiction. I tend to interview people who are there, and and talk to them about it. You know, there were a lot of people to talk to. What thing that struck me over the years was how many people I knew in my daily life who were there. I mean, people in the arts, obviously, Candace was and is a huge arts hub, and a lot of people tend to stay in the area. So I knew a lot of people from that, people in the media, obviously, people who had been there covering it, or some who had been in journalism school there. And then even people in the comics business. I was surprised when I stumbled across some people. Oh, yeah, I was there at Kent State. And, you know, so I, I got all their stories first, because these are people I know, these are people I befriended and, and, you know, I had that connection. And then I just kind of fanned out from there. They introduced me to other people and I tracked down people. Um, I wasn't able to get all the interviews I want. There are people that don't want to talk. Um, mm -hmm. There are people that have never talked. Uh, but, you know, the lack of people to talk to is not a problem. No. That's great. That's great. Well, Durf, I congratulate you on the book. Thank We've you. Doing a lot of other appearances around the country from your from your home in Shaker Heights. Yeah, yeah from remotely. Yeah, I had a I had a forty tour international book tour go up in a puff of smoke in the spring. So yeah, I'm that's still twenty twenty right there. Yeah, it is, man. 
Well, um, so let me encourage everybody again, buy a copy for yourself, buy one for a friend, send it around the world. Um, and uh, and remember that John Durf back Durf is, a, is one of our local heroes here in Cleveland, Ohio. Durf, thank you so much for being a part of our forum today and, and bringing the book, bringing, bringing the book to life, really. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you. you John, John Durf back Durf is uh, an American cartoonist and author of Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio, a graphic novel that uh, is out now. And he's the author of many other graphic novels as well, including my friend Dahmer, Trashed, and Punk Rock and Trailer Parks. Our forum today is part of our Authors in Conversation series, which is sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank Nordson, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, as well as PNC. As along with many more generous members, sponsors, and donors that you can find at our website, cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when, you're, when you visit there, and you can make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Please wash your hands and keep your distance and wear a mask and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned, and I don't have the gong, so just imagine it for a second. And we're done. <laughs>